Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Let's dive right in. Uh, Colossians chapter 4, and we'll look at verse 10. And we've been kind of doing a Mr. Toad's wild ride through Colossians here, a little here, a little there. Uh, We were in chapter 4 before. We went back to chapter 1. Now we're in chapter 4 again. But I wanted to deal with something I thought was really uh, important. And it has to do with Paul's prayer. You'll be glad to know that I'm preaching on essentially one verse today. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be fast. So uh, hold on and uh, let's, uh, let's concern ourselves with just trying to hear what God wants uh, for us to hear. You know, when Paul wrote these letters, um, they, they went to a specific address to a specific people and they opened them and they read them. It went to the, the Church of Colossae um, and they read that word and that, the word that came to them is relevant to us today because it's, it uh, proclaims the same purposes that God had for them as it has for us. And so my, whole, my hope is that we always mine deep in the Bible. And so um, when we come on Sunday morning, we're, we're not going to be gospel light. We want to be interested in going, in going deep and, and mining out all the truth that's there. And so if, uh, if you feel that's not at your stage yet, uh, hang on, because I think there's good things to learn. And uh, God has some good things for us. When you commit your life to Christ, you don't just commit yourself to a certain religion or to going to heaven, but you're committing yourself to God's purpose for you. And there's a, a thing that we ought to know that sometimes gets passed by when we call for easy decisions is that uh, we're thinking that we're deciding between Jesus and some other options about um, who's going to rescue us from the problems in the world. Okay? And that's part of salvation. But the other part of it is, is that we're really uh, giving our allegiance to a Lord. And uh, that may not mean too much to us as Americans because we feel that we're autonomous. Each of us has our own power to choose, our own freedoms that we, we come sometimes say we don't really have to answer to anybody. But that really is never true. Do you know what I mean? There's always somebody that we have to answer to. If you go to work, you got to answer your boss. If you're a kid, you got to answer your parents. Uh, if you're the president and you think you're the highest person in the world, you got to answer the people, right? There's no escaping accountability. And then here's one for you. All of us have to answer to God. Okay, so he's called us into a purpose. And so when we have um, made the decision that we're going to follow him as Lord, he's already Lord. It's just a decision about whether we're going to agree with the fact that he's Lord and allow him to be Lord of our lives. Okay, and when we do... Uh, what that means is that your life, I'm going to give it to you straight, your life doesn't belong to you anymore. Do you know that? That your life doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to him. And if you need a scripture for that, there's many, but let me just point to one. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Glorify God, therefore, in your body. Paul says it this way. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul died. And now I live, but it's not me living. Jesus lives. You see, he's made the exchange in his mind that it's no longer just my purposes, no longer just my plans, and my desire for my life. I don't get to act however I want to when I'm a Christian. 
What I have to do is I have to live in a way that honors and pleases God. Are you with me on that? And we may not like that all the time and every day when somebody cuts us off or the line's too long or we're annoyed with the other political party. You can plug in, the, you can fill in the blank there. Whatever the other political party is, you may be annoyed with that, but we don't get to act just however we want to. We act as those belonging to Jesus. Okay. So having said that, he has a purpose for our life and um, a lot of there's there's a lot of freedom within boundaries. Like if you, for the most part, if you want to follow a certain profession, so long as it's good and virtuous, if you can pray and you can ask God, unless He's got something else for you, you can do that. Okay. In some cases, He gives specific direction. Like I felt constrained, and, I, and others have, and in their calling, they felt constrained to a particular area of God's will. Okay, but he doesn't always do that in every situation. In other words, he may say to you, if you want to be a policeman, you can be a policeman. If you want to be a firefighter, you can be a firefighter. If you uh, want to be an architect, you could do that. But his main concern is honor me in that life, right? And then for others, he may, Paul describes it this way, that he may take them captive for a certain purpose, okay? And that comes with blessings and difficulties at the same time. Paul calls himself uh, one who is led around as uh, as captive in the triumphal procession. And he sees himself as in bonds, as prisoner to Christ. But Christ, uh, when he sees himself that way, it's always uh, with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek and maybe a little bit of affection, as he says that, because he loves what God's called him to. But here's my point in all this. All of us belong to Jesus. Are you with me? And we got to do what he wants us to do. And so as we, we look at uh, Colossians chapter 4, I'm dealing with one uh, verse in particular, but I'd like to read a little bit of the paragraph here and just catch the idea, and you'll see where all this is going. Verse 10 with me. Uh, Paul is closing down the letter. He's been through the theology. He's been through the, the practicalities of living the Christian life. And then he comes to statements of purpose in a prayer. Verse 10, it says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. There's a, you, you should know that, um, that Jesus was a pretty common name. And so I think in the church, for clarity's sake, when this guy gives his heart to Christ, they say, we got to give you a nickname, buddy. And so they call him Justice. And uh, he sends his greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Then he says, uh, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him. He's working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. So this uh, city of Colossae sits in what's known as the Lycus Valley. It's in Turkey. And from where you sit in Colossae or Hierapolis or Laodicea, you can see the other cities. They're within There's just this broad valley, and you can see them all there. And so the gospel has come to these places, and and uh, this Epaphras is concerned about uh, people coming to know Christ, and he's concerned about those that he knows that have become Christians. And so he prays a prayer here. It says that 
uh, he always is wrestling in prayer. The Greek word that stands behind that, we can't necessarily read back into it, but it's interesting. It uh, is the same word that we get our word agonized from. He agonizes for you in prayer. And so he's praying for these believers. And when we hear what he prays, we can hear something of the purpose of God for every Christian. Because this is what uh, God wants for every Christian. He has purpose for us. There's, there's the general purpose that God has for all Christians. He wants us to be saved. He wants all men to be saved. It's not God's will, it's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He wants us to live holy lives. It's God's will for us to live holy lives. He wants us to be people of prayer. We know that. We know that he wants us to be responsible citizens. Remember those verses about live quiet and peaceable life, that you may uh, have a good witness. He wants us to be good members of our family. Come on, it's true. He wants us to be good members. Of, he wants to be good neighbors. He wants us to be good church men and women. Do you know what that means? Get along. And there's even a verse that says, stay out of other people's business. You know? There's, there's, a, there's a place for that, to stay out of people's business. There's some things that we, because of uh, accountability, we have to address. But there are other areas where we just need to stay out of people's business. And so there, there's, there's instructions like that. And God's got great purposes for us. But we can see something of what this is right here. This Epaphras, we, we hear about him in some other places. He's called my dear and fellow servant in chapter 1, verse 7. Faithful minister of the Lord on on our behalf in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7. One of you in chapter 4, verse 12, which I think means that he's from that area and that he's a Gentile and a servant of Jesus Christ in verse 12. And so it tells us something about him as he's agonizing in prayer. He's praying some things would happen in the lives of these believers. And I would like to point those things out. The question that came to me is why include a prayer? Why do you think a prayer is included in the Bible? Why take the time to record that? Of all the things that are left out, we know almost nothing of Jesus's childhood, but we have a prayer that's been prayed from Epaphras. Okay? Uh, I think if we were honest with ourselves, we'd like to know a little more about that. And you could tell us a little less about the prayers that some people prayed. That sound unspiritual? Maybe a little bit, but I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, aren't we a little curious? Right? And yet there's this prayer, and maybe it's not quite as interesting as the facts of Jesus' childhood. But why do you think that it would say that? Was it to warn them uh, that they should live a certain way? You know, God gave us the details of this prayer so that we would know this is his purpose for each one of us. So as you look at the prayer that's prayed, I'd like you to notice some things here. First of all, Notice that as he's always wrestling for you uh, in, in prayer, it's that you may be, you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. There's three parts to this. If you're reading the ESV, it could be two parts because it, it takes uh, uh, that we're to stand mature and fully assured. But I'm going to address these three parts as it is in the NIV here. But I'd like you to notice the, the phrase, in all the will of God. Do you see that there in the Bible? In all the will of God. Notice it says, in all the will of God. This has something to do with the different circumstances Christians find themselves in. Do you have circumstances? 
I bet if we went around and talked to people, what are your circumstances? I mean, that's kind of a boring way to start a conversation, but uh, if we did, we would find out that some people are going through some things right now, hard things, maybe very, very difficult things they've never been through before and they're scared. Maybe you'll find that people are, some people are going through some very exciting things. Babies are about ready to be born and uh, you know, a new life is coming into the world, and there's preparations that revolve around all of that. And there's some that are, are coming to the, the close of their story. And so as we think about all of these different circumstances, this is probably what Paul is referring to here when he talks about in all the will of God. The circumstances Christians find themselves in lead to some big questions. The first question I think it leads to is, uh, the purposes, what purposes, what is God doing or want to do in me? Have you ever asked that question? What is God doing in me or what does he want to do in me? It's a good question to ask. God's purpose for each of us, if we're to give a general statement about this, is to make us like Christ in our character. Let me give you three references. I won't quote them, but... Uh, Romans 8.29 has to do with us being conformed to the image of Christ. Ephesians 4.13 talks about growing up into him who is the head, even Christ. 1 John 2.6, anyone who would follow after him must walk as Jesus walked. Okay, so these are, these are, this is God's will for every one of us to make us like Christ. Okay, not in every detail. There's a ridiculous book out there, and I can't even think of the title of it now, but it's somebody who tried to live like Jesus for a whole year, down to the detail. They made it ridiculous. They took out all the, uh, they, well, they put in all the enculturation. Like, you got to wear sandals, apparently, and you got to wear some kind of a, uh, a Jewish, authentic dress gown and uh, go about barefooted and, and live this certain way and, and do the diet and all of that. And that's not what we're talking about. Are you with me? Uh, there's a level we cross, there's a line we cross where it gets ridiculous. Okay, so don't go, don't go across that line. But what he's asking us to do is to bring the character of Christ into our lives. You know, the life that really belongs to him. We bring the character of Christ into him. So that's what he's trying to do is conform us in character to Christ, to make our character like his character. So that's his purpose. And all that happens in your life you could talk about here the permissive will of God. I don't want to get into deep theology on that, but uh, you know that there are some things in our lives that God allows. Okay, and when we start asking questions, what is this all for? A lot of times we're thinking on the terms of this disrupts my present comfort. I don't like it. And what we ought to be asking is maybe a bigger question: How does this better this event? conform me to the image of Christ? How can it work in me to make me more Christ-like? So we're asking questions about purpose. I think then uh, we need to ask questions about expectation. It's not just purpose. We're, we're looking at the big picture of like, what is God trying to do? But then the second thing would be, what does God expect of me in these circumstances? What does he expect of me? How does he expect me to respond in these circumstances, what does he want me to do? How does he want me to react to mean people? How about people with different political views? How does he think I should be towards uh, frustrating circumstances? And what about when I'm being actively persecuted? 
How should I respond to that? How should I respond when I'm joyful? How should I respond to God? What does he expect of me when all things are going well? Because sometimes when all things are going well, that's an easy place to backslide. Do you know that? Do you know the one of the easiest places to backslide? I can tell you uh, because I saw it. Bible college. Everything's going well. Everything's good. You're going to chapel. You're learning about God. You're in this Christian bubble, and it's easy to go into coast mode because everybody's doing the spiritual thing for you. And so it's easy to get into that. How should we respond in moments like that? And so when we talk about the will of God, we're talking about his purposes, the big purpose for the world, for the church, for us individually, and his expectations of us. How does God expect us to act in the middle of that? And uh, he's going to tell us, in this uh, prayer that we have talked about, he's going to tell us that when life happens, that one of two things can happen. We can either be shaken or we can stand firm. When life happens, we can either be shaken by it or we can stand firm in the will of God. Okay, Whatever the will of God is in terms of his big purposes, his expectations for us, whatever he may allow to come into our life, we can either be shaken by it or we can stand firm. We can either be mature in it or immature. Come on, anybody ever uh, let yourself down a little bit where something happened and then you did something and you're like, I should have known better. I'm more mature than that, or I thought I was. (laughs) Can anybody relate to that? Like, I really let my, or sometimes your spouse can be a great prophet from God. Not in my house, because I'm the prophet. I'm just kidding. No. But the, 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 the spouse can be the great prophet from God and tell you, you are acting childish. That's a hard one to hear, isn't it? Because if there's one thing that adults don't want to be accused of is being childish. Because we're supposed to have grown beyond that and be mature. When we face life circumstances, we can either be convinced or confused. Either convinced or confused. So let's talk about this. First... I want to mention uh, the first thing he prays about, that Epaphras is wrestling for these believers in prayer. He, want, he wants God's help and his work to happen in these believers so that they can stand firm, so that you may stand firm. This has to do with a certain kind of conduct. Though life may change around us, we really don't have to let it change our commitment to God. Do you know that? Life's happening around us all the time. And if you want to, sometimes we think, man, these are hard times. They are. But you know, probably every generation has faced hard times. Every generation has faced hard times. And we think that because we've had it so easy for so long that all of a sudden we've become these victims of the present day situation, however we've been so victimized by it. And we think that it's the end of the world. Well, Jesus is coming back. He's coming sooner and sooner every day. You know that. Okay? That really isn't the issue. And we can't know the day or the hour. So what we have to do is live in light of his coming and expect it. But then um, he wants us to act in a certain way. And we shouldn't let our commitment to him change based upon the different winds that are coming through. I know that sometimes when things come, they can shake us. Like, I didn't expect it to go down like that. And uh, we slip away or we get disappointed with God or get offended with God or somebody else. And 
Sometimes it's not even God. We're offended with other people, and we're like, if that's the way Christians are, I'm not going to be around them. And pretty soon we get out of fellowship, and I think we can get weak when we're out of fellowship because we need each other. And we can start to find our lives slipping away. And one of the things that happens both spiritually and psychologically is that when you get isolated, you get weird. It's true. If you get off by yourself as a Christian, you will get weird as a Christian spiritually. We need one another because we can bounce our weird ideas off one another and the other person can say to you, that's kind of weird. And you can say, okay, well, I hadn't thought about it until it came out of my mouth. When it was just circling in my head on the little hamster wheel, it sounded pretty good. Anybody ever experienced that? Sound good in your head and then you said it out loud to somebody else and you're like, ooh, maybe that's a little bit weird or they push back a little bit. So we need, we need one another. And I wanted to mention today that God reveals himself through covenant. This is commitment. This is what it's all about. That means that all purposes of God are given to us in a committed relationship with him. When it gets tough, it's our commitment which holds it in place. And of course, I'm not suggesting that it's only us. God is helping to keep us there. He holds on to us and he's committed to us. And so if we're going to remain strong, it's going to be because he's helped us and not because we ourselves are gritty. When it gets uh, tough in our commitment, it, it holds that commitment holds in place. God is committed, and if we're committed, then we can see that, that uh, commitment hold. How can we grow in Christ if we run off every time it gets hard? Let's put it in the uh, schoolhouse for a moment. If every time you got challenged with something that was above your level of understanding and you're just like, I'm, I'm done, and we ran off, could we ever learn anything? The way you learn something is you stick in there. You work through it, and you get taught, and you ask questions, and you grow, and you get frustrated, and you take tests, and the, anytime you get a red mark on the test, it tells you you didn't do so good, and you go back and evaluate, and you grow. So we have to stand in place. So this, this phrase here, it says that you may stand firm in all the will of God, in all the will of God, that you may stand firm has to do with conduct. This is a call to active standing. To stand firm, this, this word means to cause to be in a place. You've come to the place, and now you're standing in the place. You stand in the place. And it, it also suggests holding one's ground to maintain your position, like not just standing, but if the wind blows, you're not just going to let it blow you over. If somebody shoves you, you're not going down easily. You understand what I mean? This is the picture that's being given to us of Stan. Epaphras knows the challenges that the Colossians face. And we know the challenges that we face. That if we're going to succeed in our Christian life, if we're going to grow, if we're going to advance, if we're going to become what God has purposed for us to be, we're going to have to stand firm. And that means when winds and waves come that we don't bow to those. We stand firm in them. This word uh, served to characterize the end of a movement. So um, when, when you stand, you've come to that place, and now you stand in it. You've come to that place, and now you stand in it. It's the end of a movement. You moved in that direction, and now you're standing. So to illustrate that, you got up this morning, and probably, if you're like me, this is the thing that always stressed me out on Sunday mornings. 
my mom moved through the house like a whirlwind. She's preparing a roast for lunch after church. She's getting ready. I don't know what all was happening, but all I knew was footsteps were happening rapidly through the house. There was a lot of movement. And we're moving into my room. Luke, get ready. Oh, we got to go to church, which I didn't want to do. She made me go. And then we got to, into the car, and we drove to the church, and we got out of the car, and we walked into the church, and we got into our pew, which you ought to be thankful, because our pews were hard wooden pews with no padding on them. We, we stood there when it was time to worship. We sat there when it was time to sit. So we had, we had made progress all the way up to that point, and now we're here. And that's just an illustration of what this is talking about, is moving in a direction until you come to the place to stand. To stand is a decision. It's a position of faith. And so you've made a decision to follow Christ, to let him be Lord. Now it's time for you to stand in your decision. And that comes with a sense of resistance. We resist certain things that work against our standing. Maybe the Spirit has that in mind here, that having arrived at what the will of God is, stand in it. You know the purpose of God, stand in it. Don't be moved from it. It's kind of uh, has the feeling of digging in your heels against things like temptation and distraction. We need to do that, don't we? We need to dig our heels in at times and say, here I stand. I think uh, Jacob said he was reading uh, Ronald Bainton's uh, Here I Stand, the, the biography of Martin Luther. And uh, there's, there's something heroic about saying, here I stand. I'm not going to... I'm not going to move from this spot. And so when he calls us to stand, we stand in an active way. Stand isn't passive, by the way. It's active. You have to consistently resist the ability to move. I'm impressed with the Queen's Guards. Anybody know what I'm talking about? They stood out. She's now passed. I don't know if you knew that. Sorry to break the news. The Queen is gone. Long long live the King, right? But um, what do they call those? They call those guys beef eaters. They have the big hats, and they stand out there in front of the palace, and they don't move. I don't even know. I, I know at the tomb of the unknown soldier, the guys, can only, they have to blink at a certain interval. Everything is regimented, and you get the sense of stability that stands there. So stand is not packed, uh, passive. If you ever stood for a long time, you know how hard it is to stand, Anybody understand what I'm talking about with that? It can be hard to stand in the same place. You have to consistently resist the ability or the temptation to move. So it's not stationary. Even standing is not necessarily stationary in sense it's progress. It, the reason is because while you're standing, you're being strengthened. And, and God wants us to stand firm in the will of God. If you're looking for a place to plant your feet... It's in the will of God. And you don't have to do it alone. The same word that's translated stand fast or stand firm uh, is in 1 Peter 5.12 when it says that we are able to stand fast because of God's grace. He's given us grace to do that. And in 2 Corinthians 1.24, Paul says that it's by faith we stand firm. It's because of his faith that we stand firm, uh, because of our faith that we stand firm in him. We trust in him and therefore Uh, we can stand firm. Reliance on him keeps us above water. 
But looking at ourselves will cause us eventually to sink. If we're going to stand, we have to continually look to the Lord. The second thing I want to mention here is not only standing firm in the will of God, but being mature. And this is in the will of God as well. It's part of His will that we be mature. And uh, what this word means for mature here means being at an advanced stage of spiritual development. God does not want us to remain babies. Usually as a result, uh, this comes usually as a result of experience, teaching, and in most cases, time. And what it has in mind here is being fully developed in a moral sense so that we're not just constantly in this moral ambiguity that we know the right that we ought to do and we don't know we, we know what's wrong, and we are able to live in what God's called us to. Do you know, the Bible says that there will come a day, and it talked about it in Isaiah's day, and it's true today, when right will become wrong and wrong will become right, that the way people see right and wrong will be flipped upside down. And that kind of thing is taking place, but the person who is mature in this sense both lives, knows, I should say, and lives what is right knows and avoids what is wrong. A person who's spiritually mature can consistently recognize right from wrong and discern what pleases God and what displeases Him. You can tell the difference between those things. That doesn't mean that a person who is mature doesn't ever have to seek God for His direction. Okay, You understand what I mean here? It means having a sense of knowing what is right and what is wrong. And what fascinates me is that um, life comes in stages. You see, life experience can help set things in perspective, and it can also help us discipline ourselves. Life comes in stages where we learn what's appropriate. We, we come to these growing times. It's not enough just to be an adult in years. Do you know that? We have to also grow up. Spiritual maturity is an added dimension. Worldly adults can still act like children. And that's the way we were before we had maturity in Christ. Until that moment, we borrow from other people. And I, I love the idea that, that God gave us the whole family concept. And here's basically what it is. Those who are mature and experienced guide and teach those who are not and care for them. Okay? So you have a baby, and you take care of that baby, and you're teaching words, mom, dad bathroom, right? Things like that. And you're, you're teaching them different words and they're, they're picking all of those things up. But uh, this is under the guidance of the parents. The parents are doing that. They're, they're teaching and passing on to their inexperienced children. And when they get a little older, and for me, I would have just loved to have terrible food all the time, like pizza and candy all the time. Love to do that. I could still probably do that. And <laughs> mom said, no, you're going to have to eat some things that are good for you too. And so she put her foot down and, and used her experience to know if you eat like that, you're not going to be healthy. So there was help in those ways. And as you're guiding your kids, if you've got teenagers, I'm sure that this is the case too. And they're going through relationships and Stuff You may have to tell them, you know, it feels like the end of the world now, but it's not the end of the world. You'll survive. I've been there. I know what I'm talking about. And uh, maybe they face a disappointment at school or something like that, and 
You can help them through it because you've been there. And I think for me, when I was a young pastor, um, there was a time when I, when I was younger, a lot younger, and still doing this. And God um, helped out. And I was relying on the Holy Spirit, but I also looked to people who were older than me to help because I didn't know a lot of things. And so I'd ask myself in some circumstances, what would the other pastors I know do in this situation? And I often thought about the teaching of my parents that they gave me growing up, and, and their wisdom uh, helped me as a pastor, helped me to know first what to do and then how to help others. And so I was really grateful for that. That's the family dynamic is where when we don't have maturity of our own at this moment, because some of it comes through time, we borrow from others, from their example, from their teaching, from their help, from their wisdom and guidance. And, you know, the older I got, uh, the more, and still that I get, uh, the more I realize how much they knew and how they're pretty cool. Uh, when we don't have our own life experience, we have to have the wisdom of others. But we also grow in the family. Okay, so this might be uh, a less than romantic way of looking at the church. But when he, when God calls us, he puts us in the church with people who are a little bit different from us. We're not all the same. He's brought us together. We're not all the same. And so we have different preferences, we have different avenues in life, with different socioeconomic placements. We have different uh, tastes. Some of us are melancholy. Some of us are, what's the other one, more sanguine? Is that right? The opposite of that. All right. We have different personality types. Some of us are abstract randoms, and some are concrete sequentials. Right? And he's put us all together, and he said, love each other. That's hard at times, isn't it? Sometimes we don't know how to joke with one another. You're saying something as a joke, it's taken seriously. Sometimes people are saying something seriously and you're taking it as a joke. And we have this struggle of communication that takes place. But all of this is geared to bring us to maturity. See, maturity is not just knowledge that we need. We also need to be mature in doing good. The family is supposed to be that committed group of people where we learn to get along and prefer others over ourselves. We're not just going to run away. We're going to stick together. We're going to work through it, and we're going to be all better because of it. We're going to forgive offenses. We're going to care for each other's needs. We're going to prefer others over ourselves. It's in the family that we're learning not to be all about ourselves. If you're not learning that, I would encourage you to get more involved. Well, why would I want to get involved if that's the way the church is? That's the way every church is. We're brought together into this place to grow. You start caring more about the interests of others. You cry and you laugh together. We stop thinking only of ourselves and then we grow. I want to keep something in mind before we move into our final point here is that Paul says that Epaphras or Epaphras is wrestling in prayer for you. And what that tells me is it takes miracles to make them mature. Okay? He's wrestling in prayer. What's he praying for? He's saying, God, help them grow up. Look, that's what pastors ought to be praying. God, help everyone grow up, including myself. That's what parents ought to be praying. God, help my kids grow up, not just get bigger and need taller jeans. 
help them to grow up in their personalities as well. You see, you can allow yourself to become more and more selfish in time. Being, being older doesn't mean more mature. Because what can happen is we can, as we get older, we can start getting more and more entitled and think that the younger people owe us. And so we get, we get to have things our way. And then we make it more and more about ourselves, and we're actually working against maturity in that regard by demanding our own way as an entitlement of age. You can make everybody around you absolutely miserable doing that. God gives the increase in our lives, and the way he does it is through life experience, through other people, and through the sweetening presence of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't want us to be babies. Babies are cute, and they have their moment, but their cries are always saying, there's something wrong with me, and I want everybody to know about it until somebody does something to fix it. Can you see where that could be a problem if we take that into adulthood? that we're going to make the loudest noise until somebody does something about it. That's a baby trait. And it's cute when it's a baby, but I'm sure moms wake up in the middle of the night and go, when is this baby going to stop crying? When is this baby going to grow out of this phase? So it's okay when you're in that phase, but the goal of parenting, I think, is, as a parent myself, right, is to uh, raise them to a place that they can do a lot of things for themselves so they can become contributing parts of society. And, and in the church, we have to grow up too. We have to stop making excuses for ourselves and take responsibility. We've got to stop allowing ourselves to be spiritual babies. Consider this a challenge. Grow up. Let's grow up. And I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that that's true of all of us. We need all grow up in him. Finally, I'd like you to notice that third portion here. It says that you may be, he's praying, he's wrestling in prayer, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, that you may be mature, okay, and that you may be fully assured. So this is conviction. The first one has to do with conduct. Um, The second one has to do with character, And the third one has to do with conviction. When we talk about conviction, sometimes we mean that painful feeling we get when the Holy Spirit's dealing with us. Okay, That's one aspect. That's a very narrow aspect of conviction. In fact, I would suggest to you that though that's very important, that's usually not what we're talking about when we talk about conviction. When we talk about conviction, we mean deep-seated feelings of belief or thoughts of belief, that you really, really believe this certain truth. So when we talk about conviction, that's what we mean is is being assured that you have some fundamental uh, beliefs that guide who you are. Are you a person of convictions? Are we a person that's kind of driven about by every opinion that comes along? I think what God wants is people who have found the truth, are believing firmly in it, and living by it. That We have convictions as Christians. See, when there's not conviction then a challenge to our faith will drive us all over the place. It'll cause us to be washed to and fro. Challenge to our faith may be the first thing which happens when things don't go the way that we think they should. Lord, I was praying for this, and it, you didn't answer in the way I thought. Are you good? Or 
I expected this from a good God, and this is what happened, and we're disappointed. Or if you're so good and I'm serving you faithfully, why isn't my life easy? Do you know that God didn't promise you an easy life? He promised you a purposeful life. And the easy life, if you think there is promise of that, is in the life to come. You're going to have days of heaven on earth. I believe that. But I think that there's also days of challenge. We could say the other place on earth where it's difficult and you've got to work through it. And this is where convictions come in. This uh, word for convictions, the Greek word that stands behind it, means to be fully convinced of the truth of something, to be fully convinced. Same words used of Abraham in Romans 4.21 when it says he was being fully convinced or fully persuaded that God has power to do what he promised. He was convinced. Okay, Sometimes he didn't. Where Abraham, I think, we see him sway a little bit is not whether God's going to do it, but how God's going to do it. He always believed God was going to do it, but he got a little bit misguided in the how. Would you agree? Okay. So he's fully persuaded that God is able to do, that he had power to do what he'd promised. A person who is not convinced becomes unstable. James talks about the double-minded person being unstable in all their ways. In James chapter 1, verse 6 and 8, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 says, Then we will no longer be infants when we grow up in him. We'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves blown here and there, by every wind of teaching and the cunning craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, you know, speaking the truth in love, we grow up into him who's the head, even Christ. So we have to be convinced. There has to be conviction in our life. The alternative to being more and more convinced is becoming or being unstable. Um, As Christians, we need to be convinced of some things. That doesn't mean that you figured it all out. And I think there needs to be allowance in our lives when we talk to one another that we can be flexible a little bit, and that there could be different levels of certainty. Okay, You understand that when it comes to who Christ is, who God is, what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, we ought to, be, we ought to hold on to that with absolute conviction. We ought to hold on to what the Bible teaches us with absolute conviction, that we, we know these are the things. But then there are disputable matters that come up. What, what about this? What about that? And... These are things that theologians are wrestling with for years and years, and Bible scholars are wrestling with, and ordinary Christians are wrestling with. And when I say ordinary, I don't mean lesser than. I mean people who are just living the day-to-day Christian life. You're working through some of those things. and um, There can be some bearing with one another, and we don't have to demand everybody else believes exactly like us. Come on, are, are you with me on that? Would you say amen to reassure me that we're, we're fighting this battle of unity together? We want to grow. And so we grow as we, we talk through things and we, we work things out. And we allow grace where there's some minor differences. These aren't uh, the things that put people outside the church. These are things that are uh, maybe matters of interpretation. Okay? Well, I've been around Christians uh, my whole life who believe that God can speak to us individually. And I think if we we know God's spoken to us, we ought to hold on with deep conviction. Many times I've heard people say things like God told them 
this. Let's just say, uh, for illustration, God told them to ride their bike to work every day this year. Okay? Is that easy enough? All right? So God, I don't know if God would say that, but for some reason this person believes God's told me that. Okay? I think when people say that uh, God has said something, they ought to stand by it. Right? If God, If it's God's will... For you to do that, and he said it, and you're convinced of it, and you've told everybody it, you better follow through with it. Because I've seen too many times where Christians have got up, they're not fully convinced in their mind, or they think they are at the moment, but then a challenge to it comes, and they're not so fully convinced anymore. And they've told everybody, and I've seen this happen, told everybody in church, this is God's will for my life. Two or three weeks later, when the intensity and the excitement of that proclamation has died down, they're not doing it anymore. And that tells me one of two things, that one, probably, God has never said that to them, and they wanted him to say it to them, or they imagined him saying it to them, or they ate too much pizza before they went to bed, they dreamed he was saying it to them, or two, they are flaky and disobedient. Because if he said it, they better be doing it every day. And you know what the fallout is? The fallout is that kids who are watching, I know kids who've grown up in pastors' homes who've seen church people do this, and they start to question whether God even speaks to people. Because we've been so flaky, standing up and saying God said when he didn't say, or we didn't follow through with what he said. So they either see that person as flaky, in which case they interpret church people as flaky, or worse, they think God's flaky. That's tragic, if not blasphemous. And so can I encourage you with something? This is a practical thing that be careful about saying God said unless you know God said. And sometimes even then, you don't need to say it out loud. If God said something to you, maybe it's for you, and you need to hold on to that private conviction and live by it. And in time, when people see your life lived out, they'll go, why did you do that that way? Well, I believe God told me to. And then you've got the track record of having been obedient all these years, and then you can say God said, and they're going to believe you then. But when we say God said and he didn't say or we flake out on it, that doesn't benefit anybody. It'd be better to remain quiet on those things. So I would encourage you in that. Let's not make God look flaky. I think a better approach is just to live consistently the life we believe God's called us to. We need to be growing in knowing what it is that God wants for us. And there should be a greater level of spiritual intelligence now than there was yesterday. Um, This kind of assurance, he says, I want you to, I'm praying that you'll stand firm in the will of God. So God, would you give them help to stand firm? But that also calls for us as believers to, put into action that standing firm. Else, why, why would Paul report this to the Colossians? He wants them to know, Epaphras is praying for you for this, but folks, you need to do it too. That's what he's saying to them. Second, be mature in the will of God. Grow up and be mature in the will of God. And then third, fully assured in the will of God. And uh, there is assurance that can come from God directly where he gifts us with faith I think that's what Epaphras is praying for these Christians, but he's also challenged them to be fully assured because I think there's a part we play in that. 
um, there are things we can do which strengthen our faith. One, read your Bible uh, more if you need to strengthen your faith. Because when you enter the world of the Bible, you enter a God-centered worldview. Okay? Uh, and it sounds like we're escaping reality into fantasy, but what's actually happened is the reverse. We're coming out of the spell that man is at the center and entering in the story as it actually is when we read the Bible. We're seeing behind the veil a little bit. We're seeing a God-centered world. What we live in right now, it doesn't always feel God-centered, but that's a facade. God is at the center, even if he's not at the center of people's lives. And one day when the curtain's drawn back, we will see things as they are. But if you enter the world of Scripture, you're going to see a world in which everybody understands, or when they don't, there's consequences, that God is to be at the center of the universe, and he's worthy of our worship. The second thing that we can do uh, is we can build up our holy faith by praying in the Holy Spirit. We are a Pentecostal church, and I want to mention to you here, if Jude, when he says this in Jude 20, I'm only saying the verse because there's only one chapter. Jude one twenty, he says, brethren, build up your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit. If he's using the same language as Paul is in 1 Corinthians 14.15, then what he's talking about is praying in the gift of tongues. And if that's the case, then I would suggest to you there's one gift that's given for personal edification. We hear all about that in 1 Corinthians 14, that this is the gift that's given for personal edification is praying in the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I'll pray in the Spirit and I'll pray with my understanding. If he's reflecting the current language of use, then praying in the Spirit is praying in tongues. That's my contention, and this is one of those areas where we can disagree, and it'll be okay. But I would suggest to you that this is one way, and if, if God's not uh, giving you that gift, you've not been used in that area yet, ask the Lord, because the Bible says we're to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. So let's ask him, Lord, if, if, this, if you want this for me, would you be willing just to pray this? You don't have to have a theological bent on this. Would you pray this? Lord, if you want me to be used in that gift, I'm opening myself up to you. Would you give it to me? Whatever gift you want to use me in, I want to be used in that way. Third, um, and this, this will help build up our faith, is we can commit ourselves. I'm going to cruise through this, but we can commit ourselves. You know, what I mean by this is that we, there are some things that we can't fully know from the outside. Like if you want to know if a restaurant is good, you can go on Yelp and look at the reviews. You can hear from your friends. And they might be right, and they might not be. But you could go there yourself and taste and see if the food is good. Does that sound like a verse? <laughs> you can also taste and see that the Lord is good. There are some things that we can't sit on the outside and observe that the faith comes in the committal. You, you know what I mean? I'll tell you, um, yesterday we went door to door. We passed out loaves of bread. I always get nervous every year. And I'm a pastor, and I shouldn't be probably nervous about that, but I am. I get nervous knocking on the door, the first one, and sometimes into the second one, but usually after the first one, that cures me of it. Knocking on the door, and we just say this simple thing. But what I found is that the moment you start to speak, and this happens Sunday after Sunday because this terrifies me, preaching in front, speaking in front of people. The moment you step out and you start doing it, God meets you in it, and there's faith for it. 
And that happens again and again. And I would suggest to you that if you're finding in your walk with God and the will of God that you're not feeling particularly brave, God never said faith was a feeling. You might be scared. And what your body might do is step out in faith even though you're scared. You might have, like Paul, when he preached to the Galatians, he came to you, well, in the Corinthians. When I came to you, I came to you in much fear and trembling to proclaim to you this word. So he went, and his body was scared. His mind may have been scared, but he acted in faith. Do you see the difference? Feeling and faith don't always play well together. Folks, that's good preaching. I didn't even plan to say that. That's true. Feeling and faith don't always play well together. So I want to ask you, when it comes to that battle, which one will you choose? Because the Bible talks about the flesh warring against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Where do your feelings reside? They're in our flesh. And I'm not saying they're bad. It's just they're spoiled children. They're not good taskmasters. We have to let our faith take lead in that area and step out. And when I get it perfected, I'll let you know. But it's a, it's a challenge. You see, there might be two perspectives on the same fact. One is faith and the other is skeptical. You might stand firm, mature, having been convinced while engaging in doing the whole will of God. The really good news is Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. If, he's gonna, if we're going to be mature, if we're going to stand firm, if we're going to be fully assured, he's going to have something to do with it. I don't know if you know the story of Mark. By way of conclusion, I want to mention Mark. Mark wrote a gospel. Do you know anything else about him? He might have been the young man in the garden uh, in Mark chapter 14, verse 51 and 52, where it says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus when they seized him, Jesus. He fled, oh, seized him, Mark. He fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's scandalous. Okay, so what happened is he's following with Jesus. He's wearing kind of a, a big pair of underwear. Okay, they grab Mark by his clothes. He rips out of them and runs away. That's Mark. Aren't you glad to know him? Later, uh, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they went on their first missionary journey, and they took Mark along. He's known as Mark. He's also known as John Mark. Uh, probably to avoid confusion with the other John, they drop, they drop John and just call him Mark. So while they're on the mission trip, they go to Cyprus, and then they go back to the what, what's now modern-day Turkey. And when they do, Mark leaves and goes back home. And Paul considers that a desertion. He ran away. We were on this missionary journey, and he ran away. And so later on, when uh, it's time for them to go on their second missionary journey, Paul says to Barnabas, let's go. And Barnabas says, I'm going to bring Mark along. And Paul says, no, we're not. He, he abandoned ship in the middle of the mission. He ran away. Again, the two instances we have of young Mark is running away when trouble comes. Okay, so I'm not going to take him into that situation again. He didn't stand firm. Maybe he wasn't mature. But we know things changed. Near the end of Paul's life, he, he counts on Mark, who is reliable. He's reliable because he's become mature. 
If you look at the verses we just read this morning, verse 10, it says, my fellow, Aris, uh, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you greeting, as does Mark, cousin of Barnabas. You've received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Why is he coming? Paul cannot come because he's in prison. So what does he do? He sends somebody who is reliable, somebody who stands firm, right? Somebody who's mature, somebody who's fully convinced. Who is that? It's Mark. Mark, one time, ran away. I don't know why he ran away. Was he homesick? Did persecution get too bad? Was the missionary lifestyle too hard? Did people eat weird food and he couldn't stand to do that? I don't know what it was, but he didn't stay the course. But now, later in life, Paul says, he's valuable to me because he grew up. He's fully persuaded, and he stands firm. He went from being Mark the Flake to Mark the Mature. And he becomes a man who can be counted on so that Paul sends him to Colossae. Then we have Archippus. This is in verse 17. It's one of the last verses in Colossians. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have in the Lord. Okay, Don't flake out, Archippus. Okay, Be fully persuaded in what God's called you to do in his will. Be mature. Finish the work God's given you. That's what mature people do. They stand in. They stand firm in what God's called them to do. If, we, if it's our tendency to run away every time it gets hard, I would challenge you, by the help of the Spirit today, learn to stand firm in what God's called you to. Don't run away. Okay? Second, if you feel, man, I'm not quite there yet, keep growing. And the way you keep growing, stay plugged in. Plugged into God, into His Word, into the people of God in prayer. Stay plugged in. God wants to cause us to be mature. And then be fully assured. This is something that comes more and more with time. I found that some of the things that were central, I've become more and more persuaded with in time. Some of the things that were not so central, that have become clear to me, I've become less concerned about. But in the important things, I've become more fully persuaded. And that's what God wants for you. He wants it for all of us. So that we can be the kind of Christians He desires for us to be. Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your attention today. Let's take a few moments and bow our heads. And I want to ask today, if there's somebody here that you've not made a, a commitment or decision to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior, would you consider this morning that uh, God has sent Jesus as a substitute. He sacrificed himself for our sins, for your sins and mine, so that all the wrongs that we've committed were placed on Jesus on the cross. He took our punishment, and he rose from the dead so that he could be our Savior and Lord. Today, if you put your confidence in Christ and just say, Lord, I trust you, would you be merciful to me because of my past sins and forgive me? And I'll, I'll trust you with my life. If you would pray a prayer like that, if you would say something like that to God today, today could be the day that changes everything. If the collective example of all the Christians in this room have any voice, it's this, that Jesus 
changed our lives. Would you dare to trust him? This may be one of those things that you can't, you can't know looking from the outside fully how wonderful it is to know and to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. So I'd ask you today, would you say, Lord Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Trust yourself to him. Believe in him. And I would encourage you, let somebody somebody know, let somebody here know that you've made a commitment to follow Christ with your life. But I think the message is directed majority to those who are trusting in Christ already, that we would be those who know the will of God and we, we stand firm in it. We're not swayed by the tide of um, moral ambiguity. We're not pushed by this world's ethics. We're not driven off course by claims of other Jesuses. We think about how when Jesus said, some will say, here is Christ and there is Christ, don't go out looking for another Christ. You found him. You've come home. If you know Jesus, your Lord and Savior, stand firm in him. Don't be looking elsewhere for something to supplement with Jesus for your spiritual life. Today, I would encourage you um, to be mature in him, to let God do that maturing work and to stay the course. You don't get mature by by bailing every time it gets hard. You grow mature. You become disciplined in your Christian walk by standing firm and standing in there and be willing at times to make mistakes and learn from them and grow from them. Be mature. And I would ask you today to let God do that work of convincing you fully, changing your mind. You know, salvation is a, you enter a long process of having our, our minds changed to conform to his way of thinking. We come with so much worldliness in our thinking and we're bombarded with it in all kinds of media. We have it naturally because we are born with a kind of self-centeredness about us and so we have to learn to think the way that God wants us to think, to to change our perspective from a me-centered world to a God-centered world. He's at the center and not us. And so... Would you allow God to make us fully persuaded? I'm going to open up the altars if you want to come, but I'd like to ask for all of us who uh, desire this kind of life. This was what Epaphras prayed for the believers at Colossae. If this is something that you think you want or you feel God calling you to respond to today. Would you be willing to say to him in your words, in your place, in your own setting, Lord, I'm committing myself to these things. I want to be one who stands firm. I want to be mature. I want to be fully persuaded. I'm committing myself. God, if you do your part, I want to do my part. Okay? Make that commitment to the Lord today. Maybe you're young in the faith and like maturity seems so far off. Would you be willing to say, I'm going to enter the process and let God be God and change me? Amen. If you would like to come and spend a few moments at the altar today, you're welcome to do that as we sing this song. Man, as I was standing there and we were singing that song, I was thinking about how I kind of view Sunday's message as this is our family meal together. And, uh, you know, I I wanted to prepare something that I think will be uh, nutritious and hopefully palatable. And uh, I know tastes are different, and I understand that. 
Um, but I want to encourage you to understand what's at the base of this. this is God's word, and we're, it's worthy of banking our lives on. And here's the other thing. You can't get by every week just eating Sunday meal, right? You got to go home and, and feed day in and day out on his word. And so I'd encourage you, look through, read through Colossians. Hear the whole message. Hear everything Paul has been trying to say. And use that to supplement what we've talked about here today. He wants us, God wants us to be those kind of believers who can stand, who can be mature, who can be fully assured. That's the kind of believer who changes the world. Amen. Thanks for being here. Father, thank you for your word. And uh, we look forward to 242 groups tonight. We ask, Lord, that you would let that be a blessed time as we continue to build relationships and, and are strengthened and are matured through our interactions with one another. I pray you help us, Lord, to as we grow as a church, to reach our community in a, a better way. Help us to be mature as we go out into our world and, and uh, to show something different than what the world has to offer, we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.